Good morning, Door of Hope. Good morning. Wow, I'm Vivian Parker, and I'm just thrilled to be here with my basics, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I'm going to be reading the scripture for you today, and it is found in the book of Mark, the ninth chapter, verses 30 through 37. And actually, I'm going to read it to you from the New King James Version, okay? Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. All right, well, my name's Cameron, um, and I just want to open with a question. question is this, who is the model of greatness for you? Like when you think, I don't know, you think of greatness, Think of great, a great person. Who do you think of? And what makes them so great? Maybe you could put it this way. If there's one person in life that you could take their success or their achievement, the way people think about them, their regard, whatever, and apply it to yourself, if you could just steal a bit of their glory, who would it be? Don't be hyper-spiritual. Don't say Jesus. It's, of course, the right answer. Although I guess we shouldn't talk about stealing the glory of Jesus. Um, don't say Jesus. Just take a second. I want you to actually legitimately think. Who's the greatest person for you? Just take a second. For me, it's come and gone in stages. I suspect it has for you too. We're, we're growing, evolving people. Our, uh, our tastes and our, uh, the things that impress us change. I, I, one of the earliest ones I can think of uh, was Michael Jordan. And that was yours? We're in good company, my friend. Um, actually, it was kind of weird. You could, you could ask my parents about this if they were here. I, I, uh, I got so into Michael Jordan that basically my closet became like a quasi-shrine to him when I was a kid. Uh, I, I ended up collecting Michael Jordan basketball cards, and my whole thing was trying to get just like unique ones. So at one point, I had like 80 unique Michael Jordan cards. Uh, None of them were valuable, actually. 
I I, uh, I tried to go back and like find, but they were all the ones that are even still now worth like a dollar. <laughs> but um, but I was trying. I was trying. I had the posters. I had Michael Jordan's uh, autobiography, which was like very few words, lots of really epic pictures, um, all kinds of stuff. I had this shrine to Jordan, and that was because at that time in my life, there was nothing cooler to me or more important to me than basketball. Um, I remember having the talk with my parents. I, I, I was a perceptive little, um, you know, third grader, I think it was. I was playing lots of sports. My, my parents exposed me to lots of sports. And there came a time when I realized, okay, I was looking at my genetics, you know, my mom, my dad. I'm, I was never particularly fast. I was always particularly white. And <laughs> I was like, okay, if I'm going to get really good at basketball, uh, I've got to cut this baseball stuff out. I've got to cut this soccer stuff out. I've just got to get serious about this. So I said, Mom, Dad, soccer's over, baseball's over, it's all basketball. And, uh, and I gave up my best. I gave up my best and was an okay junior high and high school <laughs> basketball player. Uh, but at some point, it, it, it became evident that like basketball was not going to be my ticket to greatness. As much as I loved it, as much as I had fun doing it, as much as Michael Jordan was the coolest person on the planet to me, uh, I had to move on. So it was like friendship with basketball over, uh, friendship with music on. <laughs> and so late high school into college, it was bands and it was music and it was like we had a little band in college that we were trying to play, play around town and play regionally and you know make the best album anybody had ever heard of. Because at that time there was no one cooler on the planet for me uh, than Jeff Tweedy, the lead singer of Wilco. I don't know if you know that band. They were my favorite, still are my favorite, although they've firmly transitioned into the dad rock phase of their lives, which is perfect for me, because I'm a dad now. Dad that likes to rock. Uh, we're all aging so gracefully. Um, but yeah, my point here is that there are different people and who, uh, different things that come to mind when we think of greatness, and that greatness is largely dependent on just our interests at the time. The things that now I, w I might say, oh, that is what greatness looks like, might make no sense to you. Because you're like, well, I don't care about, you know, country rock bands or <laughs> basketball or Pokemon. I don't know what it is, whatever it is, whatever it is. These things come and go. And for many of us, they come and go in stages. There's sports, there's music. Even now, you know, there's that temptation. And we'll talk about this later as an illustration. We get into this. Uh, you know, relate, I think all of us have this. Whatever our main thing in life is, maybe it's your job or whatever, you, you, you have these delusions or even these hopes of just getting greatness in that thing. So even, dangerously, the idea of like pastoral prominence. You know, these little questions. What would it be like to be a successful pastor, a glorious pastor, a pastor that people want to read their books and you know, uh, stream their sermons or what, I don't even know. Speak at all the conferences, all that stuff. Could be career. Your sense of greatness could be derived from the people who have the most money or real estate. Awards, artistic success. Maybe it's all away from, you know, you're not into that mainstream stuff, but just artistic success from the tastemakers that really matter. I'm not looking for the adoration of the crowds. I just want it from the critics. Maybe it's social media influence. Greatness is very, very easily quantifiable in most social media spaces with likes and followers. Maybe it's just pure celebrity. You just want people to listen to you and view you as an important, noteworthy person. There are probably as many definitions of greatness in this room as there are people in this room. What amazes one of you might be utterly unimpressive to me and vice versa. 
Um, but every culture and every subculture has its, its, has its own value systems, its own tiered rankings of what constitutes greatness. So you as an individual might have one, but the city of Portland has its own things that influence us all, subtly or not so subtly, and how we're to view greatness. The state of Oregon might have those, the country of the U.S., the planet as a whole, perhaps, as we become more and more globalized. Our church, young as it is, probably has one. Intentionally or not, we probably have little things that are shaping our collective imagination about what the truly great life truly looks like, a significant life. Your household, whether it's shared with your family or just your roommates or whatever, every one of these social structures has its own system of values and its own definition of greatness. And here's where I'm going with this. Jesus the King has one. And his kingdom has one. And his, in most ways, is not like yours. It's not like mine. And that's what today's passage is all about. So let's pray. Let's pray that he'd reveal these things to him. And then we'll take a look at what's, what, what God's spirit, through the gospel according to Mark, has to teach us about this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the chance to be together. We thank you that we get to open up your word, Lord. We thank you for these particular words from the ancient writer and disciple Mark that have been preserved for us in your sovereignty, Lord, that we get to read them, we get to learn from them, that we not, not just get to read interesting words on a page, but get an encounter with the living Christ, that, that this Jesus who we read about, who lived and moved in this world in human history is not just a figment of memory, but he is alive and sitting at the right hand of God. So as we come to your word, Father, we meet you. We meet with you. May this be relational this morning. May you help us fall a little bit more in love with you and understand you a little bit more deeply and more than anything, just know you more as a result. Help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's, let's just look at it. It was already read for us, but we'll, we'll take it in chunks. They went on from there. So this is from... Uh, probably the area of Mount Hermon. Remember a few weeks ago, the transfiguration story? Jesus was shown in his heavenly glory to the disciples, to three of them at least. They came down, they had this confrontation at the bottom of the mountain uh, where there was a demon-oppressed boy that the disciples couldn't deal with. Jesus had to, had to heal, had to cast him out. So from there, up north probably, they came down south and they passed through Galilee, that home region. Galilee is kind of the region where basically the entirety of the first half of Mark's gospel took place as Jesus was traveling and teaching and healing and doing all his Jesus-y things. And he did not want anyone to know. So he comes back to his home region, but once again, the secrecy theme. He did not want anyone to know. Why? Well, thanks for telling us, Mark. Four, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So here Jesus talks about his death a third time. It's really the second time he does it in detail. He brings up his death again. He says again that he's going to be killed 
and rise from the dead. And that that's, we remember, we talk, we've been talking about this. Every time Jesus brings it up, we have to emphasize this. This isn't a fluke of history. This wasn't Jesus just the fortune teller getting some details right about an incidental thing that was going to happen. But this is the culmination, this death and rising of Jesus is the culmination of the eternal plan of the God of the universe to save his people that he loves. Jesus isn't being taken by surprise on his way to the cross. He isn't going to be, his plans aren't going to be foiled by his betrayal and his killing. This is what he has his mind and his eye set on. Even though in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going he's gonna to plead for perhaps a different way, quite humanly and quite understandably. Nonetheless, in his heart of hearts, in his core, Jesus is set on going to the cross. He's a man on a mission to suffer and then to rise again on his loved one's behalf. So he brings it up again. But we do get a new detail here that he hasn't mentioned yet. And that's that he's going to be delivered or could be translated handed over or betrayed. So what we see here is that there's a measure of insult added to this injury. It's not just that Jesus is going to be taken and killed. It's that he's going to be betrayed to enable this to happen. Jesus knows this already. Of course he does. He's God in flesh. They didn't know. But most of us know that it was going to be one of the very 12, his closest disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was going to betray him, to hand him over, and to do it for money. So here's what's important. We get another death prediction, this time with a wrinkle of betrayal. But the disciples don't understand, and they didn't want to understand because they were afraid. You ever been there before? You get a hint of something, but you'd rather just not press in too deeply because you don't really want to know what's on the other side of your questions. We do that in our human relationships. We do that in our relationship with God. It is a common reality that fear or embarrassment keeps us from looking closely into the things of God. What that ultimately does is it keeps us from intimacy with God, forever keeping him at arm's length because we just don't want to know. That's how the disciples felt. He brings up death, and they, they didn't really get what he was talking about, but they don't really want to know either. So we keep reading. And they came to Capernaum. That's kind of the, we've seen Capernaum a bunch in the Gospel of Mark. That's kind of the, the ministry hub of Jesus, probably where he was living, where his home base was during this time. Capernaum. And when he was in the house, they go into a house. We don't know whose house. Maybe one of the disciples' house. Maybe the house that Jesus had kind of set up as home base. We don't know. But in the house, he asked the disciples. He puts the question to them. He says, so back there, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Why did they keep silent? Thanks again. Mark tells us, for on the way... They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So we get this picture here that they're, they're traveling and Jesus was explaining things to them, even the, even the things related to his death and his betrayal. You can imagine Jesus being very sad and it's like this intense, heartbreaking thing where Jesus is predicting what's going to happen. This is so intense. This is scary. And... <laughs> Just as those, those conversations are being had, the disciples are chattering amongst themselves. It's like the kids on the back of the bus, you know, where the teacher turns around and they're like, like quiet. I don't want the teacher to know what they're talking about. 
The disciples were chattering privately from Jesus. So once they're in the privacy of this house, Jesus asks them, he says, what were you talking about? What were y'all talking about? But they don't answer. Again, probably embarrassed or ashamed because they know what they were talking about wasn't right. It was stupid. They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So first, note the inappropriateness of this. Jesus is talking about suffering, death, betrayal. He's reminding them of his central mission, his finest instance of self-giving, sacrificial love, the model for what love ought to look like in his disciples' lives, laying down your life for that of a friend. And their impulse is to start arguing about their greatness, their prominence, their glory. Talk about a lack of empathy. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Yeah, that's cool, Jesus. I don't know what that's all about, but guys, I'm going to sit in the the most prominent seat, right? No, I am. No, I am. No, you don't deserve it. I do. I'm the one who did that miracle. I'm the one who taught those people. Remember when I carried the bread and the fish to those people? They're arguing. Talk about tone deafness. Talk about missing the point epically. But once again, Mark doesn't want us to just tip our noses up at the disciples or scoff at them and think, what a bunch of idiots. Good thing I'm not like them. Note how natural this is. This is a perennial problem. Like the 12 disciples 2,000 years ago, Christians today still have so much trouble hearing about the way of Jesus, the nature of the gospel, the, the, the call to sacrificial love, the nature of the kingdom of God, We hear these things, and then we read our world's values into them. We read our own desires into them. We assume if there's a heavenly kingdom and a royal family that we get to be a part of, then that means earthly power, earthly privilege, earthly glory, earthly prominence, earthly greatness. I'm a servant of the king, so I'm cutting to the front of the line. So the rules don't apply to me. I don't have to serve anybody. I'm destined for glory. We assume that it means we get to set the rules. We assume it means we get to dictate the way that things go. We assume that it means we get to be the beneficiaries of the way the systems and the structures of the world are ordered because we're with Christ. I think it's very natural. I don't think we have to look far. We don't even have to look beyond our own hearts to see that impulse is alive and well. Third, note that it's not just that they're worried about greatness in general, but, that they're <laughs> but or even just them as a group. Oh, I want, I want prominence for me and my brothers here. They're co- actually competing with one another. The argument is about which of them is greater than the others. That's what they're talking about. And this battle for, for greatness in human terms, it's baked into so many prominent worldviews. Even just take kind of, uh, we, I guess we talked about this last week, but take kind of naturalism, um, materialism, um, Darwinism, the survival of the fittest. If it is true, if on a system where there's no God, there's no creator God, there's no sustainer God, and all there is is matter in motion, and uh, life has evolved, and it's evolved through this mechanism of the survival of the fittest, this greases the wheels towards valorizing this very attitude, right? 
on a naturalist worldview, fighting for greatness, even at the expense of others, even at the expense of your neighbor's well-being. It's not only the most natural thing in the world to do, but there's nothing obviously wrong with it. There's nothing obviously wrong with killing your neighbor so that you might have their food because you need to survive. And there's nothing more fundamental or important than your own survival and the propagation of your genetic line or whatever. In fact, it may be that something, <laughs> it may be that doing that, putting yourself over against your neighbor for your own well-being is something close to the meaning of life in a system like this. If those assumptions about the world are true, the late 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, Josh referenced him a, a couple of weeks ago. I don't know why Nietzsche keeps coming up, but he does. His writings brought many of these inevitabilities to clarity and prominence. Because of his naturalistic assumptions about the nature of the world, the non-existence of God, he argued at every turn against what he called the slave morality that incentivized, that, uh, slave morality that incentivized humility, gentleness, restraint, self-control, generosity, even service. He argued endlessly against those things. In the words of theologian John Frame, these are, these are Frame's words about Nietzsche, he, Nietzsche argued we should reject moral and religious ideas that restrict the full expression of our will to power. To the contrary, we should aspire to be the ubermenschen or supermen or overmen who achieve more than the herd through superior creativity. But ideas have consequences. And this idea profoundly and most famously shaped Adolf Hitler in the agenda of Nazi Germany to bring this overman, this superman, this ubermensch into reality. And there are probably less overt versions of it, even in seemingly innocuous phrases like we use all the time, like, you do you, get yours, you only live once. I'm not saying that's the equivalent of, of Nazism, certainly. But do you hear it in there? Get yours. What else is there? What else is there? These phrases, these sayings, they subtly shape you and me in this direction. To pursue greatness, to pursue prominence in the world's terms, because what else could there possibly be? But in the last verses of this passage, Jesus puts forward an alternate way. He puts forward a better way, his kingdom way. So Jesus knew what they'd been talking about. They don't even want to answer him now, but he says, okay, guys, come here. He sits down like a rabbi, like a teacher, and he calls the 12 to himself, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he's just giving them a principle here. You want to know what life's like in my economy, in my kingdom? Here you go. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, and he put him in the midst of them, and taking them in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And that's the end of our passage. So Jesus gives us a principle. First, want to be great? Be last. Become a servant Jesus is saying in so many words, do you think that I'm going to be your ticket 
to worldly or human greatness or success? Do you think you're going to ride my coattails to a really cushy job where you get to have a bunch of authority over a bunch of people and things are really nice and easy in this life? It's actually just the opposite. <laughs> this is the set, one of several teachings now we've gotten from Jesus along these lines where he says it's the opposite. Following me in this world, in the here and now, before his second coming, it is a ticket not to greatness, but to exclusion, to humiliation, to opposition, to frustration, and on and on and on. And that's the way Jesus wants it. In fact, if you want to be faithful to me, if you want to be high and prominent in my kingdom, you need to go down. You need to go low. You need to serve. The way up is the way down. And then he says not only that, but to serve people, even a little child, is to serve Jesus. Jesus says, I identify so much with this little child, this vulnerable person who's viewed basically as property, basically as not really much inherent dignity or value. He says, I identify so much with this little child that to receive, to serve, to care for this child is to do the same for me. And if you do the same for me, you're doing it for the Father as well. So Jesus reaffirms this indestructible link between loving God and loving neighbor. Heard that one before? It's right here again, the great commandment. True greatness to Jesus is caring about people. Predominantly, the most seemingly insignificant people. And this is not the way it works in our world. We might all like to think, oh, that's a nice thought. I think our, our world's been Christianized enough that we hear this and we're not scandalized by it. We go, yes, that's good. That's one of Jesus' nice and beautiful and good teachings. But, but the truth that's in our hearts, I think, betrays, betrays what we really feel and think. It is a scandalous teaching. We should pause here and note, though, that Jesus didn't just give this scandalous teaching about greatness from, from some kind of, um, you know, ivory tower where he was, he was separate from its implications or its difficulties or its challenges. Jesus first perfectly embodied this, didn't he? That's the gospel, that he came to serve. He came, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came into the human mess, the human predicament, was incarnated, lived amongst us shoulder to shoulder to serve, to lay down his life, to sacrifice, to give to the point of betrayal and suffering and death and burial. And he was exalted to the right hand of God. He sits on the throne now. There is none greater than Jesus. He himself modeled this for us. He came, he served, he was humiliated, he hung naked, splayed out on a cross, broken, bleeding. And that was the greatest act of human history. There is none greater than Jesus. Him. Jesus does not give us a principle like this in the abstract and say, this is good for you, but for me, I'm just going to sit in the ivory tower. No, he came and he did it perfectly to save you, to save me, to save any who would call on his name, any who would receive this free gift that he gave. Then he, he, he gives the principle 
And then he, he gives this illustration with the child. He takes this child, as I said, someone with no social standing, no social value, on par with slaves in this culture. But it's not so with Jesus. And just even notice the affection, taking the child, holding, I don't know, the, the, the language there of embracing him, holding him, taking him in his arms. It's very tender. It's very affectionate. Whereas other people might be inclined to say, get out of here, the adults are talking. Don't you know this is kingdom business, kid? He takes him in his arms. In other places, in fact, he's going to do it later in Mark, Jesus talks about children as an example of who to be like. We need to emulate some aspects of children. We don't need to be childish, but we need to be childlike. But that's not his point here. Although the first time I read this, I couldn't get that out of my head. I was kind of stuck on it. But I saw Jesus making a separate point here. Here he talks about children as an example of who to serve. It's not be like children. It's lay yourself down for these children. Give yourself to serve these children. Receive these children. Love these children sacrificially. That's his illustration. Even this person that you would wholly dismiss, think have nothing to add, and really they can't benefit you in any way. Children are largely just a drain on your resources, right? If you're a kid in here, I know there's a couple kids in here, we love you so much. But the fact remains, children are costly. Children are costly. He says, nonetheless, this is who I love. You want to serve me? You want to serve God the Father? Serve these children. By the way, we have needs for volunteers in the children's ministry right now. No pressure. A little bit of pressure. This depends how much you want greatness, you know? <laughs> I think that is an ac ac accurate, applicable application, actually. Well, that's his illustration. And then he applies it. He applies it. Or I'm sorry, we apply it. We take this principle, we take this il illustration, and we say this. We lovingly say, that, let the word of God speak this. I say it first to myself, and then I say it to you. Get over yourself. Get over yourself. Cameron, get over yourself. Humble yourself. And serve. Do the things no one else wants to do for the benefit of others, for the people that you don't get any credit or glory for doing it for and towards. Take the lowest position. You've been blessed. If you're in Christ, you have been blessed beyond belief. Now go be a blessing to others. You have been served by the king of the universe. Now go and serve. This starts... I just said, with us being served by the king, you will never do this, at least certainly not in a, in a sustainable, long-term, healthy way, in a way that's with the heart Christ intends, until you've come face-to-face -face with the reality of how Jesus has already served you. Because we can, we can add a bunch of law and rules here, or you could even say, oh man, if I want to be right with God, I need to serve. And we can miss the heart of the gospel that he's already served you. He's already done everything necessary to bring you into his family. But you have to recognize you needed that. 
it's not incidental. You needed desperately the king of the universe to come and serve you if you were going to be made whole, made well. And he's done it. And if he can do it for you, if he, if he will serve you, you can serve anybody. I can serve anybody. That's the heart of this. So to conclude, I just want to acknowledge a couple of things. First, I just want to say this. As one of the people in this room who's most frequently up on this stage, um, this is a humbling word to me. This is a humbling word to me because, though, believe me, I think preaching the, the scriptures is crucially important for this church and for every church. I'm not saying what, what happens when we exposit the word isn't important. Don't hear that at all. It is. And though it is an example of using what God has given me to serve this community, I acknowledge that. As far as what Jesus is talking about here, this, this stuff, it's incomplete, and it's actually dangerous. What do I mean by that? I mean it's incomplete in the sense that the 40 minutes I'm up here preaching will never replace the ways in which I do or don't actually become a servant to the real people around me. It almost has nothing to do with it. And I can talk up here, I could beat my chest, I could make you feel guilty or something, and I could be the worst servant you've ever met. And you wouldn't know it. I can talk, I can talk a big game, I can talk about Jesus. Read the Bible, got seminary degree, all this stuff. And I can, the scariest thing, I could fool myself into thinking just because I'm up here talking about these things. That I'm doing what Jesus is asking. And they're quite separate. This is quite incomplete. This will never replace how I actually become a servant to the real people around me. My wife, yes, my children, my friends, this church community, you, you. And there's some way I could serve you. Will I step up to the plate? Even my enemies. Jesus even calls us to serve our enemies. My greatness in Jesus' kingdom will never be defined by how well I use this little microphone. Ever. But by how scraped my knees are from serving those around me. And I don't say that to say, and, and I'm really good at it. You know, I, I, just let, I just let that weight sit on my shoulders and, and want you to hold that weight over me too because it's the truth. So it's incomplete. Preaching, preaching the Bible is an important thing to do. Being a pastor is important. It has all kinds of opportunities to serve others, but it's incomplete. It's also dangerous. What I mean by that is because it's very, very easy to become puffed up or to be conceited or to be molded and shaped a direction the opposite of humble service by standing on a stage with a microphone, whether it's in a church setting or you're a CEO or a, a presenter at conferences of, of whatever the world. You have all seen that dynamic. It's really, really easy for people to become detached and weird and conceited and disconnected and self-aggrandizing and distancing and all kinds of strange things because of a stage and a microphone. So, I just say that too. 
And that's part of why we really value here a, a diversity of voices in this pulpit. We don't want any one person to be who we as a church look to. Say, that's the person I get the Bible from. No one else. It's a blessing that we have Josh preach. Hey, Josh, thank you. Thank you for preaching regularly for us. And that's why we're working with volunteer leaders to actually raise up other voices that we want to pepper into this pulpit. I guess that's a sidebar, though. My point is, the stage can be dangerous. The last thing I want to say is I want to speak to those of you with no positions of prominence. Some of you have positions of prominence in your job. There's lots of people who look to you for answers, whatever. Some of you don't. And I want to speak to you. Maybe you're in some way on the outside of most of the circles you run in. Maybe you feel disrespected a lot. Maybe you're not part of the majority culture where you find yourself. I want you to hear in this text something crucial. That Jesus sees you. Though in worldly standards, yeah, there may be not a lick of greatness to you. It has nothing to do with the king of the universe and how he sees you. I think the people who quietly serve this church in prayer, in practice, taking meals to people who need them, staying up late with a friend who's crying, who's wrecked with guilt or shame, fear. I mean, pragmatically, the list could go on and on and on, but the people who quietly serve, and there's no microphone, there's no live stream, there's no camera, there's no lights, there's no glory in human sense in it. Those who serve are the greatest. Jesus sees you. If the world doesn't value you, it doesn't matter. The king does. The king does. Even the connection to children made me think of stay-at-home parents. We've got stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads in this congregation. And I know that is a difficult, difficult job. Serving children. It's glorious. It's beautiful. It's sweet. It's difficult. You're pouring your life out for children who don't understand or who probably won't understand or appreciate what you're doing for decades, if ever. <laughs> I know my mom, my mom in Arkansas listens to these sermons. Mom, I love you. I'm so grateful for you. But the king sees. He sees you pouring out your life for those he identifies with. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, on the great and awesome day of the Lord, this day we hope for, Jesus comes back, he's going to put all things right, he's going to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. All sin will be done away with, all rebellion will be squashed. Every bit of evil and darkness and destruction in this world will be a thing of the past. It also says that, th that unseen things will be seen. And I suspect in those days there will be many surprises. And as we think about even our little church community here, Door of Hope Northeast, the people that we think are the greatest, people who think, wow, Jesus must be really proud of that person. Wow, thank God that person's on our side doing kingdom work. I think when the unseen things are seen, 
Their position may surprise you. And the person you've never thought twice about, you just see quietly serving and caring and loving on our neighbors here and our brothers and sisters in this church. All we can say is Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And those things will be seen too. So praise our King. Praise our King that he's this way. It's a hard word, but it's a beautiful word. And it's not just uh, something, again, that he, he declares to us from his ivory tower on high, but he's come in and he's done it, so we know he's serious about it, and he's served us. Praise him. Amen? All right, let's pray.